Thank you, Pastor Brett. What wonderful time of worship we've shared together. Uh, it is my privilege to come to you this morning and share with you from God's Word. If you have a copy of the Bible, find Psalm 139. Psalm 139. If you are here this morning and you don't have a copy, uh, you'll find a copy of the, of the Scriptures in the pew rack in front of you. Uh, if you don't own a copy of the Bible, please take that as a gift from us. This morning, take it home with you and read it and believe it. Psalm 139. While you're finding Psalm 139, I'm going to take a, uh, a moment of personal privilege. After all, I have a Bible and a microphone. Right, Perry? <laughs> and uh, I just want to give you a quick update. Many of you all have uh, personally came up to Carl and I and asked, because many of you are aware, if not most, uh, back in July, our house was hit with a flood. We had uh, about five inches of water throughout the, the main floor of our house. And um, you as a church body honored the Lord well in your graciousness and in your giving in providing for us. It was not covered by insurance. Uh, they keep telling me that uh, uh, those things aren't covered by insurance unless you buy special insurance for it. And who knew? <laughs> Uh, but the Lord has been gracious. We are still not back in the house, um, but things are coming along nicely. This past week, uh, most of the painting was completed. There's a little bit of touch-up work that needs to be done with the painting. Hopefully this week, doors will be hung. Next week, cabinets will be put in place. After that, flooring will be put down. After that, trim will be put down, and we'll be back in our house. So uh, thank you for praying. Thank you for giving. Thank you for asking. Uh, Lord willing, uh, my goal was to be in before Thanksgiving. I think we're going to beat that date. Uh, uh, certainly, hopefully by the end of, of October, we will be back home. And uh, I'll be sleeping in my own bed and uh, sitting in my own recliner. <laughs> After all, it is football season. And uh, <laughs> I do my best cheering from my own recliner. But uh, anyway, enough of that. Thank you again. So very much for your goodness and kindness. You'll hear, hear more once we get finished. We have some plans and some things we want to share. Uh, right now, we're not quite ready to, to uh, share all of that. But uh, again, again, you have been so generous and kind and gracious. Um, I've said this often uh, over the last couple of months. When God wants to love you, he uses his people. And uh, I've been loved, and as has my family. And I greatly appreciate that. If you would, please stand now for the reading of God's Word. This morning my text is Psalm 139, and that psalm needs to be read in its entirety. And that is exactly what I intend to do as we begin our time together in the Word this morning. Psalm 139, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know, when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hear me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from the Spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. 
If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the innermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day and the darkness is as light with you. For you have formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. O that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They, they speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there are any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. Dear church family, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the God, the word of our God will remain forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As you've been hearing from this pulpit over the last month, tomorrow evening we're going to gather together as a body with other brothers and sisters from across our county and, and perhaps some who are not brothers and sisters for that matter. And we're going to consider life. And one of the things we're going to talk about tomorrow evening is we're going to talk about the value of life. What is life worth? How do you measure a person's worth. I, I would suggest to you that our culture has a number of ways of measuring the worth of a person. If you're a, if you're a football fan, maybe, maybe you measure the worth of a quarterback by how many completions he made yesterday. Or, or, or if it's a running back, how many yards he gained. Or, or if your team won more games than they lost this year. Perhaps you would measure the worth of someone by how much money they make. We hear about billionaires in our time. Somehow, having a lot of money seems to make you worth more in our culture. Perhaps, perhaps you measure worth as our culture does by how good-looking someone is, how handsome or how beautiful they are. The truth is, our world, our secular world, places very little true value on human life. Much of what has become the secular view of the value of life can be traced back, I believe, to the widespread adoption of evolutionary origins of life. Taken to its logical conclusion, if life originated by chance and the origin of life is a random combination of chemicals, then there is no inherent value to human life at any stage of development. So I think in our culture, this has led to a higher value on the quality of life rather than the 
a sanctity of life. Perhaps this has never been more clearly seen in our culture than in 1973 on January the 23rd of that year, the United States Supreme Court brought down a landmark decision in the Roe versus Wade case. You remember that, right? You've heard of this? In short, the court found that during the first trimester of pregnancy, the decision to abort is left to the judgment of the woman and her attending official, uh, physician. After that point, the state may regulate the credentials and the type of facility of those offering abortion services. After fetal viability, ability to survive outside the womb, the state may regulate and even restrict abortions, except when the life and, or the health of the mother is endangered. This ruling, in effect, opened the door to abortion on demand in all 50 states. And for 50 years, our country lived under the curse of this decision. Over that period of time, some 63 million babies were aborted. Now, if you find that statistic alarming, you should. However, on June 24th of this year, the U.S. Supreme Court reversed itself, in effect. In, fa in, fa in fact, it ruled that the Constitution of the United States does not confer a right to abortion. That in, and in so doing, the court uh, overruled the Roe versus Wade 73 division, a, a decision and the Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision of 1992. The majority of the court held that abortion is not a constitutional right as, as the Constitution does not mention it and its substantive right is not deeply rooted in the country's history and that individual states have the authority now to regulate the access to abortion. This was an answer to prayer. And while this decision is certainly welcomed, and with grateful hearts, God's people all across America welcomed it, we still must face some major challenges concerning the value and the sanctity of human life in our country. I read a recent uh, public opinion poll done by the Pew Research Center. In fact, it was in, on May 17, 2022, they published these results. The Pew Research Center found that while public support for legal abortion has fluctuated over the past two decades, it has remained relatively stable over the past several years. Currently in America, 61% say abortion should be legal in all or most cases, while only 37% say it should be illegal in all or most cases. When they broke down the results, here's what they found. They found that 84% of Americans who identify as not affiliated with any religious group say abortion should, should be illegal or should be legal in all or most cases. Did you catch that? 84%. The gospel matters. The gospel matters. What we do here on Sunday morning matters. It matters in this life and in eternity. In that same poll, they found that 63% of women and 58% of men say abortion should be illegal in all or most cases. And that 74% of Americans, now listen to this, 
74% of Americans between the ages of 18 and 29 say abortion should be legal in all or most cases. We're not finished. There's still work to do. The youngest among us have yet to understand the sanctity of life. And what we're reaping is a harvest of a quality of life ethic rather than a sanctity of life ethic. The real question is, does human life have value? And I would, I would suggest to you this morning, in fact, I would insist this morning that according to David in Psalm 139, the answer is a resounding yes. Absolutely. This psalm, this 139th psalm, is an extremely personal psalm. It's, it's packed with some of the best theology in all the Bible. And we're not going to have time this morning to do justice to this psalm. I'm certainly not going to be able to unpack it in any detail today. But I do want us to savor the richness of what the psalmist David describes here as God's omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence. He does so in sweet terms. This is not some stale theology. This is the, the speaking of a heart of God, a man of God. Alexander McLaren, the Baptist theologian from a previous century, wrote this. He said, this is not, he doesn't speak here of mere omniscience, but a knowledge which knows uh, us all together. Not mere omni uh, omnipresence, but a presence which, which we can, can nowhere escape. Not a mere creative power, but a power which shapes us and fills us and thrills us to our very soul. In so doing, David demonstrates the true value of each person created in God's image. So if you're taking notes, we're going to unpack this in three, uh, under three headings, uh, or three statements this morning. We're going, to, we're going to look at and talk about God's sovereign knowledge of us. God's sovereign knowledge of us. Secondly, we'll consider God's supernatural presence with us. And then we'll conclude our time together by looking at God's special provisions for us. So let's begin where David begins, with God's sovereign knowledge of us in verses 1 through 6. In the opening stanzas of this beautiful psalm, David talks to us about the omniscience of God, the all-knowing God. A.W. Pink, in his, his little book, The Attributes of God, has this to say about God's omniscience. I just thought this was worth sharing. God knows everything. Everything possible, everything actual, all events, all creatures of the past, the present, and the future. He is perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven, in earth, and in hell. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing can be hidden from him. Nothing is forgotten by, uh, by him. He never errs. He never changes. He never overlooks anything. He knows it all. God knows us. And the psalmist David tells us, first of all, that he knows us intimately. Look at verse 1. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know, when I sit down and when I rise up, 
You discern my thoughts from afar. Notice the language of the psalmist here. He speaks of God searching and knowing us. He's, he's, he's relating to us that God knows us through and through. He knows everything about us. He knows us intimately. In fact, in verse 2, he says, God knows our movements. He knows when we sit down and when we rise up. Not even the simplest parts of our lives are hidden from or lost on God. He knows our motives. He says in verse 2 that he can discern our very thoughts. He knows what we think and why we think it. In Hebrews, we read these words, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God knows us intimately. He also knows us practically. Look at verse 3. You search out my path and my lying down you, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. He knows us in practical ways. He knows our ways in verse 3. He knows where we're going. He says, but, uh, the psalmist says, you've searched out my path. You know my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. The Puritan commentator Matthew Henry wrote, God knows what rule we walk by, what end we walk towards, and the company that we walk with. He knows our ways. He knows our words in verse 4. He says, before a word is even formed, you know it. And in Matthew 12, Jesus reminds us that our very words will be judged when he writes, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. He knows us. He knows us intimately. God knows us practically. God knows us personally. Look at verse 5. You hem me in. This is beautiful poetic language. You hem me in, he says, behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Some translations translate verse 5 this way. You enclosed me or you encircled me. The ideal is that God knows me. He knows where I'm going. He knows where I am. He knows where I've been. He knows everything about me. And he laid his hand upon me. See, friend, this is no absentee God. It's off in heaven doing something. But he is a God who's attending to us in the very intricate, personal parts of our life. He knows us. He knows us intimately, practically, personally. And friend, he knows us better than we know ourselves. Look at verse 6. Such knowledge, the psalmist writes, is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Do you see what David is saying here? David is saying that God knows us better than we can even know ourselves. He knows us in ways that we're not even capable of knowing ourselves. Perhaps this is some of what Paul was, re was re reflecting on in Romans 11 when he writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. What a God. He knows us. This divine knowledge, this fact that he knows us intimately, he knows us practically, he knows us personally, this knowledge is either comforting or convicting. It's either, it's either, it either brings peace 
or terror. For the believer, it is comforting. For we never experience anything that our loving Heavenly Father is not aware of and indeed control of. I love, I love the Great Commission, especially the way it ends. Jesus said, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In Hebrews 13, we read that Christ said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He is always with us. He knows us. For the unbeliever, this can be a horrifying truth. The fact that the eternal righteous judge of the universe knows every hidden sin and thought and deed. I believe this led the writer of Hebrews to proclaim it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We see here, we see God's sovereign knowledge. Secondly, David speaks here of God's supernatural presence. God's supernatural presence. He introduces this to us by means of a question in verse 7. Look again at your text at verse 7. David says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Now, this, is, this question is two ways of asking the same question. Basically, he says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? It's the same way. It's two ways of asking the same question. In fact, I think it's what Paul was getting at in Romans 8, where in verse 35, he writes this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Notice what David tells us here about the presence of God in our lives. He tells us that there is neither height nor depth that can separate us or remove us from God's presence. Look at verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. God occupies heaven and God controls hell. There is no place absent from his presence. We are always in his presence. David will affirm this truth later in, in that same book of Romans 8, in verse 38, when he writes, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, David writes, nothing, Paul proclaims, can separate us from our God. Not only cannot death or hide, but look at verse 9 and 10. If I take wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. While no height or death can remove us from God's presence, no distance can separate us from God's care. That's what David reminds us of. Notice, notice again, and he says, if I take the wings of morning, if I, if I fly to the skies, if I, if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, if I, if I go across the ocean, he says, even there, even there, your hand leads me, your right hand holds me. This is true because he is our shepherd. And in another psalm of David, David reminds us that the Lord is our shepherd. And I shall not want. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. There is no place, Christian friend, you will ever find yourself out of the care of your loving shepherd. He is there and he is caring. Not only does there's there no height that can sep- or death that separate us, no distance that can separate us. Darkness cannot hide God, hide us from God's view. Look again at verse eleven. If I say, "Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about and the light about me be not," listen to verse twelve. Even the darkness is not dark to you. <laughs> Isn't that good? Even the darkness is not dark to you, for darkness is as light with you. Not even darkness can hide us from the Lord's view. Again, the psalmist David, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil; my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Oh, listen. This is the supernatural presence of our God. He never leaves us. He always cares for us. And nothing can hide us from Him. You may be going through a dark time in your life right now. You may feel like you're surrounded in darkness. I have good news for you. God sees it, and God sees you, and he cares. We see here in this text before us, we see the sovereign knowledge of God. We see the supernatural presence of God with us. And I want to conclude this morning by looking at God's special care for us. God's special care for us. And that care for us begins in the womb. That's what he tells us. Look at verse 13. For I formed, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. God creates us in the womb. God creates us in the womb. He creates each person in the womb. God creates persons. Not masses of cells, but people, persons. Listen to David's language here. Notice his use of personal pronouns. David speaks here in verses 13 through 16 of, he says, of my inward parts. You knitted me. I am made. My soul, my frame, my unformed substance You formed me. When David spoke of unformed substance, he spoke of David the person, not some mass of cells that can be cast aside as if it didn't matter. Friend, listen to me and hear me well. You will never, ever meet a human being that has not been created in the image of God. Of God. Every human being is created in God's image. 
And God creates persons in the wombs of their mother. God creates each person. He creates each person on purpose. David uses a Hebrew word that's translated knitted in our text, in our English Standard Version text. By using this term, he pictures himself as a fine piece of art and God as a skilled craftsman. I want you to notice three things that we learn here in these verses. In verse 13, we are told that there are no unplanned children. Look at it. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Sounds like somebody has a plan. There are no unplanned children. In Jeremiah 1.5, we read these words. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And in Job 33.4, we read, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. There are no unplanned children to God. Secondly, verse 14. There are no defective children. Look at verse 14. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. When God creates in the womb of a mother a child, God says of that child, it is very good. He has created it on purpose, for a purpose, and there are no defective children. There are no unplanned children. There are no defective children. And finally, (laughs) therefore there can be no disposable children. Look at verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. What is he saying here? He's saying here that God made that each individual human being created them in the womb of of their mother and he made them for a purpose and they have value because they're in God's image. And so the psalmist would write in Psalm 127, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is reward. Can I tell you something that breaks my heart? As 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 I reflect on my generation... We have allowed our culture to so devalue life and the life of children that somehow we, we, have, we scoff at large families. God forgive us. The psalmist said, the psalmist said, children are a heritage of the Lord. We have, we, have, we have transformed from a culture that celebrated children and many children to a culture that somehow thinks that more than one or two is too many. Friend, it's not just the culture, it is in the church. Now please don't misunderstand me. You may be here this morning and you may not be able to have children. This is not, I'm not reflecting on that. I'm reflecting on a cultural position that has devalued children and no longer sees them the way God sees them. So please don't don't hear me saying if you're here this morning and for whatever reason you're only able to have one or two children that I'm somehow casting aspersions on you. That is not my intent at all. 
But as a greater culture, we don't celebrate children, large families, as we once did. And certainly not the way the Bible did. And all I'm simply saying is this. Is let's begin as God's people once again to value what God values. And celebrate what God celebrates. And love one another in the midst of it. God creates each person on purpose and for purpose. In verse 16, he says, at the end of that verse, he closes out by saying, In your book were written every one of them, the days that that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. This ideal of being formed is to mold or to form. It spoke of a potter. It's the ideal of determining. And in Psalm 90, 12, he tells us to, to number our days. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. God creates us on purpose for purpose. There are no accidents with God. You say, Tim, you don't understand. Some situations are extremely hard. I do understand. But I still believe in a good and sovereign God. God cares for us in this life. He created us in the womb and he cares for us in this life. Look at verse 17 and 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. God's thoughts for us are good. The psalmist says in verse 17. Jeremiah said it this way, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. His his thoughts for us are good. They are beyond our knowing. In verses 17 and 18, he talks about the sum of them is so great that they could not be counted. They're greater than the number of sand. We cannot even begin to number the the thoughts of God concerning you. And the psalmist would say in Psalm 45, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. This is how God loves us. Each of us who he formed in our mother's womb. He loved us and he cared for us in the womb and he cares for us today in this life. God's thought for us He says, in the morning, I awake, and you are still there. You're still with me. It's constant. Aren't you glad God doesn't take vacation? And then, verses 19 through 22, the psalmist tells us that God protects us from evil. In in these verses, which are, are, are difficult somewhat to read, what David, I believe, is getting at here is this, is that we live in an evil world, that we are surrounded by evil. And that, that, that we have to avoid evil altogether. David says, I want nothing to do with evil or with evil persons. So he agrees with God's judgment on evil. Paul says a very similar thing in 2 Timothy 2 when he says, Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. He protects us from evil. As he reminded us to pray in the model prayer. And then finally... Verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Finally, God saves us for eternity. 
This God who cares for us, creates us in the womb, cares for us in this life, protects us from evil, and saves us for eternity. How does he do that? Well, verse 23, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. This is the psalmist's way of saying, God, reveal my sin. Show me my sin. Reveal to me my lostness. It is the work that God promised, Jesus promised, when he says when the Holy Spirit would come, he would convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This is the kindness and the goodness of God as he reveals in us those things which are contrary to him and his word. And then he cleanses us from that sin. In, John 1, in 1 John 1, 9, we read, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then notice at the end, the psalmist cries out, And lead me in the way everlasting. God transforms us. He leads us into a way of eternal life. David would write in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This, this God who loves us, who is holy, who created each of us in his image. But we've rebelled. We've shook our fist in God's face as it, would, as it were. We told God, we don't need you. We can figure this out on our own. And we've gone our way, a way that leads to destruction, the Bible says. But God didn't leave us to our own devices. He became a man. His name was Jesus. He lived, he lived on this earth without sin, died on a cross for all of those who would repent and believe, was buried and rose again on the third day, and is coming again in triumph and in judgment. Perhaps you're here this morning and you don't know this Jesus I've talked about. Oh, you may have heard the stories. You may be aware of, the, of, of what we refer to as the gospel, but there's never been a time in your life when you've come to faith. We'd love to talk to you about this. We'd love to counsel you in this. We'd love to come alongside of you and walk with you in this journey of faith. And after the service closes this morning, if you exit those doors, turn left on the right. Just before you exit the building, there's a room called Crossroads. One of our pastors will be in there, and he would cherish the opportunity to have that conversation. I'll be here. Pastor Perry will be around. Other elders will be around. There are believers all across this room this morning who would love to have that conversation with you. Please don't leave here this morning without knowing this Savior, this one who cares for you, this one who knows you better than you know yourself and loves you and calls you to himself. Every human being is created in God's image. And every human being has eternal value from conception to natural death because God has created us on purpose for His purpose. He knows us, He is with us, and He cares for us. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this time in Your Word. Lord, thank You for... Psalm 139. My, my, how much richer are our lives because 
of this word from you. Lord, I pray for each of us here this morning that we would value life the way you value it. We talk about the sanctity of life from conception to natural death. Every one of us created in your image of eternal value. And Lord, I pray for souls here this morning, some of whom have yet to be brought to faith. Would you, by your kindness and grace, draw them to yourself even this moment, that they might exit this place today knowing, knowing that a God who knows them, who loves them, cares for them for eternity. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.